0: Have you ever um, have you ever regretted a decision? <laughs> no, no, not me. Um, no, actually, um, I was I was uh, I was trying to decide from the great collection of regrets I have of which one to to illustrate this with, and I finally decided the the there was one that was a double double regret, and what happened is I became convinced that I had an untrustworthy car, and it gave me lots of reasons to think that, but. But I decided that this car was untrustworthy, so I rushed into a decision to buy a replacement and Then, about a year later, even though there was really nothing wrong with that second car it had just it had just become associated in my mind with a hasty decision and and being forced into doing something that that i didn 't want to do and I never did like that replacement car and so i ended up I ended up trading it and getting a different car so so it was a very expensive and uh, important learning experience i learned that cars don't make you happy but um and uh so, so so um so I, it wasn't a complete loss but but i have i have regrets because because of things like that i feel like i've been pressured into a decision um like that first car kind of pressured me into making a quick decision and then i disliked the second car simply because i associated it with that so sometimes we make hasty decisions sometimes we feel like we're pressured into making a decision and there's lots of there's lots of times when when that happens maybe some of you have bought um the insurance at the car rental place um, you know, where even though you've already got insurance and even though it covers it, they are so good at telling you that, no, it's not, that you say, I guess maybe I should just pay the extra $10 a day or something like that. Maybe you've had that situation, or maybe you got the gas because it's so expensive nearby or things like that. Um, you know, there's, there's other ways. Maybe you bought the extended warranty. You know, you're know, you there at Amazon, you're doing the checkout, and it says, do you want the four-year warranty? And you go, I don't know, maybe so sometimes we have these decisions. Uh, there are so many ways that we are pressured into making decisions, um, because uh, because people in sales know you need to always be closing, and so sometimes they're always closing. Um, sometimes always. Um, so um, the uh, the 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 one that is particularly difficult, the the sales pitch that is particularly hard to resist is, "Dad, can I keep him? I promise I'll feed him." <laughs> <laughs> some of you some of you have had that situation before uh, where you 've had to deal with you know no, we really don 't need another pet so so there 's lots of times in our lives, um, some from people we have no reason to like, and some from people we love that that we feel like we 're pressured into making decisions that we feel that we might we might regret and um, uh, the uh one of the things about Christianity is it is often um, presented that way. There are a lot of people who present Christianity the same way. Maybe you've heard them that the the idea that you know if you don't you know where would you go if you died tonight? Do you know where you will spend eternity if you die tonight there's people There's people who say that kind of thing There's people who say um, you know the the, um, the the reason you need to be an evangelist is because the only thing you can bring to heaven. Are the people that you um, make into Christians, and and I, I know that those almost always come from from a position of of um, a, a good place. That people are trying, you know, they they care and they are usually trying to do something, and and they have been persuaded uh, that that's the best way to do it to use high pressure tactics. You know, the the um, the Russians have launched. Did anyone get this? The Russians have launched. They're missiles and you better make your decision right now. So I heard a, I heard a pastor talking about how he was scarred for, for like 12 years away from the church because of that manipulative pressure to become a Christian. And I know that people usually are doing that from a good place, um, but they're using a bad tactic. Um, in fact, um, how many of you, did anyone else have to read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God in like high school English class? We had to read segments of it. It's like 28 pages. So, um, so I can't say I've read all of it, but it's, it's a very long sermon, 28 pages, and it was a sermon. And it was a famous and very influential sermon because Jonathan Edwards, uh, used it to, to basically, w- the result of the, of that, uh, sermon, it has, it, people have attributed to that sermon the, the first great awakening in the United States. So it had a great impact. And Jonathan Edwards was a a staggeringly um, important uh, theologian, really America's first native um, uh, uh, theologian. And um, I don't want to criticize him, but on the other hand, I'm not sure that that technique is the best technique to say, do you realize how bad it will be for you in eternity? And the reason I do that is because I don't see Jesus doing that. I don't see Jesus using high-pressure techniques to get people to become Christians. In fact, he does the very opposite, and that's what we're going to look at today. Um, we have been in this conversation looking at the, um, the, the journey that Jesus makes, uh, from Galilee, where he began his earthly ministry, to Jerusalem, where he concludes it with his death and resurrection and ascension into heaven. So, uh, along the along the course of that journey, Jesus does all kinds of teaching and Luke has uh, um, a the way that Luke describes it in his biography it 's one a solid block of teaching, and so we're 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 looking at that as we go along and in it. Um, we see that, uh, the, Jesus has, uh, the last couple of weeks we've been at a dinner party Jesus was in, but now he's left the party and now large crowds we read are traveling with Jesus. So, he's, he's popular. A lot of people think this guy's the guy, you know, if we get in on the ground floor, we'll get the, you know, the pin that says we're the special, you know, early, early uh, adopters or whatever. And, um, and they're thinking, you know, maybe I could get a position in the, uh, administration. I could be, you know, postmaster general or something. So people are thinking this is a, this is a great uh, thing to get in on the end of. So large crowds are traveling with Jesus and Jesus turns to them and pours a great big bucket of, hot, uh, of cold water on them. He says, whoever comes to me and doesn't hate father, mother, spouse and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even one's own life, cannot be my disciple. So he says, if all you're looking at is the upside, you need to think again. You need to think twice or even three times because it's not going to be a rose garden. So he says, you have to hate these people. Now, some of you say, well, you know, the one, yeah, definitely I could hate him, but um, but you're thinking, really, these people? You know, I, I, I love those people. And Jesus is talking about our closest relationships right he's not talking about the, the neighbor that neighbor next door who still hasn't returned the lawnmower he's not talking about our actual enemies he's not talking about um hating vladimir putin you know you could you could imagine if jesus said that we'd go well you know jesus if you insist but but he doesn't say that. he says hate your family members so what are we to make of that should we really hate? Well, we know Jesus is using hyperbole. Jesus is overstating the case to make a point. And the reason we know that is it's only been a couple of chapters since he used the the, the most famous parable he's got, the parable of the Good Samaritan, to tell us that we need to have a very expansive understanding of what it means to love our neighbor. Uh, The the legal expert asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, the, the hated minority who um, nevertheless demonstrated love for his neighbor. And Jesus asks, well, which one of those three people was a neighbor to the person who encountered thieves? So Jesus says that you have to love your neighbor, and he's given a very um, expansive understanding of it. And in fact, he does say you have to love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. So Jesus is saying that you have to love Pretty much everybody. And so when he says, hate your father and mother, he's not saying, hate your father and mother. He's saying that they have to take second place. They have to sit in the back seat. They cannot be the primary focus of your life, even though they are good things, good good people. That The love for them is a good thing. He says, it has to come second. If you're going to be a disciple, that discipleship has to be the, the defining characteristic of your life. It has to be higher than any other priority in your life. And then he says, whoever doesn't carry their own cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. So, what does he mean by that? Well, in the first century, uh, when somebody was crucified, uh, one of the things that they would typically do was they would carry the cross beam, the, the horizontal part of the cross. They would carry it from wherever they were sentenced out to the place of execution. And the reason for that was to intimidate everybody else. Everybody else would look at them and say, there is, you know, somebody I don't want to be like. There's somebody who is so dumb, who is such a loser, that they got on the wrong side of Rome, and I don't want to be that person. So Jesus is saying that um, if you're not willing to face that kind of of um, uh, sanction, if you're not willing to have people look at you and say, what an idiot, how could he possibly have done that when he knows what Rome will do, when he knows that Rome is the one calling the shots. Why would he ever do that? And Jesus is saying, you're going to have to face the same kind of shame. You're going to have to be the person who's paraded through the streets. And everybody looking at you and going, man, not me. Thanks, no. Jesus is saying, that's what you have to do. Anyone who is not willing to carry his cross is not, cannot be my disciple. So, he says, you have to be willing to face shame and ridicule. To be his disciple, and you have to rearrange your priorities so that you can you can um, make your discipleship the highest thing in your life, even greater than the good things. And then he gives uh, a couple of illustrations that basically say the same thing. He says, "If one of you wanted to build a tower, wouldn't you first sit down and calculate um, the cost to determine whether you have enough money to complete it? You know, look at your budget before you start buying things." He says otherwise when you've laid the foundation but couldn't finish the tower all who see you, you who see it will begin to belitter, be, belittle you they will say here's the person who began construction and couldn't complete it says you you'll if if you rush into this if you make a decision I'm going to be a disciple then people will laugh at you later on when you come back with your tail between your legs and say uh it didn't work out I don't want to be a disciple. Jesus is saying they won't applaud you. They won't say well you finally came to your senses. They'll say you are an idiot to even try. What kind of idiot would ever do that? Jesus is saying that's what's going to happen. They will mock you for trying something that that um, and, and then changing your mind later on that They'll say, you know, this guy began something but didn't complete it. And he says, um, or what king would go to war against another king without first sitting down to uh, consider whether his 10,000 soldiers could go up against the 20,000 that are coming against him. And if he didn't think he could win, he would send a representative to discuss terms of peace while his enemy was still a long way off. And in the same way, um, none of you who are willing, uh, who who are unwilling to give up all your possessions, can be my disciple. Now, it may seem like Jesus is taking kind of a a, a sharp turn here. That it's not obvious what's the connection between possessions and the 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 King who's who's reacting to uh, this this army that's coming against him. And, and the difference is that the the army is something you can't predict. It's something that comes at you. And you as a king, you know, if you're if you're putting yourself in the position of this king, you're going to be facing the decision, you know, we've lost three battles in a row. You know, should we sue for peace now? Well, that's a bad time to sue for peace. It's better up front because they don't know necessarily whether they're going to win. But, you know, if you wait until you're half defeated, then the terms of peace are going to be much worse. So he's saying that you may not be able to control that in the sense of, you know, it comes at you but if you look at it and say i'm going to i'm going to cave i'm going to fall fall apart under the under this force then do it up front do it up front not halfway through so so the idea here is um your possessions how does that connect with possessions well the idea is that being a christian will will put at risk all of your possessions all the things that you hold dear uh, are going to be at risk in the same way that if you if you said to the the foreign king that was coming at you you know what will it take to buy you off? You know, do you want some border villages? You know, you know what, what will it take to make you go away? And that's probably going to be a lower price, but it will require that you give something up. And so Jesus is saying, you have to be ready to give things up. And, uh, and we might say, well, yeah, but what do I have to give up to become a Christian? And the answer, the answer is uh, potentially everything. And the reason for that is there is an army that will come after anybody who is a disciple. The, the army is the world, the flesh, and the devil, the things that the things that we want, um, the things that we have been trained to want, um, will pull on us. They will fight against us. Uh, the Apostle Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians, he says, "You used to act like most people in our world do. At one time, you were like those persons. All of you used to do whatever felt good and whatever you thought you wanted." He says, "That's not going to stop. You're going to continue to think that there's something you want. You know, PFD sale, anyone? Right? So, so there are going to be things that that appeal to you." That's not going to stop when you become a Christian. The question is, do you have it in you to say, you know what, I don't need those possessions. I can give that up. Because the world, the flesh, and the devil will will come against you. And so if you're going to end up caving in halfway through, then he says, better to not get started. So he finishes with another metaphor. He says, salt is good, but if salt loses its flavor, how will it become salty again? now that didn't make any sense to me but i looked in some of my resources and they said the way that people in palestine in that era the, the people in the the holy land what they did is they would go get salt from the dead sea because the the edges the the shore of the dead sea is crusted over with dried salt but there were other things in there besides sodium chloride there's other minerals and so forth that were in it and if you if you um If you get rid of the salt, what's left? You've got these other minerals that nobody wants. If you put that salt in a bucket, a bucket of water, then the salt will dissolve and you could pour that out and then all you're left with is the weird minerals and so forth that were part of that salt. So he says, if the salt loses its flavor, if it loses the salt, um, if it loses its saltiness, how will it become salty again? You've already poured out the water. The salt is gone. All that's left is these minerals. So he says it has no value either for the soil, neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. People throw it away. Whoever has ears to hear should pay attention. What is he talking about here? He's saying, he's saying the essence of discipleship. If you're willing to bargain away the essence of what it means to be a disciple, you know, the essence of salt is salt. Um, the essence of discipleship is doing what it takes to follow Jesus, doing, you know, following Jesus wherever he calls you to go. So he's saying, if you're going to do that, you know, rather than just turn away and say, I'm not a Christian, you know, I give up, instead of doing that, you may try to save face. You may say, Oh, I'm a Christian, and then you may start phoning it in. You know, I still go to church on Sundays, and people think I'm a Christian, but I'm not really. And Jesus is saying, You know, if you aren't going to be a disciple, spare yourself the trouble. Just don't be a disciple. So, so don't, don't, um, don't try to look like salt if you're not going to be salt. Don't don't phone it in. Don't don't um, just just uh, uh, go through the motions. Don't retire in place as a Christian. So, what is Jesus doing here? What is what is the message for us? What does Jesus want us to take from this? Well, because we are living in the twenty first century, we may think what Jesus is doing is reverse psychology. Do you remember there used to be an ad you'd see it says um, maybe you've got what it takes to become a United States Marine but maybe you don't right maybe you know it, probably you know for you you know don't don't even try right maybe Jesus is using reverse psychology right we might think that that Jesus is you know um uh, Tom Sawyer and getting his his uh, friends to paint the fence for him you know it's like nah you couldn't do it well so you know is that what Jesus is doing you know I, I found out I, I learned that there is a term for that in the sales world it's called negative reverse selling and the article uses an example you're not ready to read this article so because they want you to read the article so is that what Jesus is doing well, in the 21st century, we might think that's what Jesus is doing. But there's no way anybody in the 1st century would have thought that he was using reverse psychology. And the reason is because they knew what happened to him. They could look at the example of Jesus. They could look at the example of the other apostles who followed him. They, you know, Starting with uh, um, Stephen, the first martyr, uh, going down through the rest of the, the apostles. Uh, according to tradition in the church, the only apostle who did not die at the hands of people who didn't like Christians... Was John, and that's because he spent most of his most of his adult life on a, a prison island, kind of like Alcatraz or Devil's Island or Robin Island. He spent he spent most of his life on Patmos, um, breaking rocks in the hot sun. That's the only one who didn't actually die at the hands of of, um, people who were opposed to Christianity. Nobody in the first century would have thought, oh, Jesus is using reverse psychology. Jesus is really telling you the way it's going to be. And that continued, you know, the, the early church people like Polycarp and, and Irenaeus, they were martyred, um, and, about um, about 150 years ago, people were doing some construction in Rome, and they opened up this room that had been sealed. It had become part of a, um, a foundation for um, the, the buildings that were above it, and they discovered what is called the Alexamenos graffito. The graffito is the singular, I learned, of graffiti. So they found a single graffito of a guy named Alexamenos. And I don't know how how easy it is to see that. It just looks kind of like some scratching on the wall. But but if you trace it, you get a picture that looks like this. And it's a guy, an um, uh, uh, army person from the, the costume, um, who, is, who is bowed down. He is prostrating himself before somebody on a cross. And that somebody is a donkey person, somebody with a donkey's head. And it says, Alexa Menos worships his God. They're making fun of Alexa Menos. Who on earth would be so stupid as to worship somebody who was executed on a cross? Somebody who was an ass. Who would ever do that? Alexa Minos, you fool. Nobody in the first, second, or even uh, the beginning of the third century would have believed that Jesus was using reverse psychology. Jesus was warning people. So, what was he warning them? What What was he telling them? What was the takeaway? Well, the first takeaway is that Christianity is harder than you'd like. There are people... On TV, who will tell you, no, Christianity is actually greasing the skids. It'll make your life that much easier. And the answer is, no, it it really won't. And so um, maybe that'll look like uh, shame and ridicule. You know, uh, he became a Jesus freak, you know. It's a shame. He used to be cool. Maybe it'll be your family, you know. It's like the family will will say, you know, (laughs) you used to be more fun. Or I always feel like you're judging me. So Christianity is going to be harder. Jesus is saying just flat out it's going to be harder than you think and um, th- than you'd like it to be. And as a result of that, he says you need to be prepared to rethink your priorities. If you think the most important thing is what you're going to buy with the PFD, um, except if you're using it for fuel. Right. <laughs> you know, apparently, apparently a big chunk of it is for energy. But... Um, but you might need to rethink your priorities. Jesus is saying, you need to rethink that because that is a point of leverage. If you cannot adjust your priorities, if you can't say, my possessions don't mean anything to me because I'm a disciple of Christ, if you're not willing to let them go, then that will become a point of leverage against you. That will become the the king that is coming at you, the world, the flesh, and the devil. So he says, be prepared to rethink your priorities. And so I would encourage you to to rethink um, where you spend your money and time Uh, what do you do with your money and time you know now's a good you know there's always this is a great time to get started and because it because that'll tell you you know no this is harder than i thought Um, i'm not sure i want to do that so be prepared to rethink your priorities now of course jesus is is saying don't do this because you love misery You know, if you enjoy being miserable, Jesus is not saying Christianity is only for people who like being miserable. Jesus is saying that Christianity will justify everything it costs you. He says it will cost you; it's going to cost you, but it will justify that. Jesus told his disciples, "The thief only enters to steal, kill, and destroy. I came so that they could have life, indeed, so that they could have life to the fullest. It will cost you, but it will be worthwhile." And as I told the children, this can be difficult. And this is the reason our church has a mission statement to help people trust Jesus for a better life. The promise is there. Jesus has promised a better life. But it can be hard sometimes to trust him because what we see is the cross and the king coming against us. And so it can be hard to be good disciples. And so as, as a church, our mission is to help people trust Jesus for the better life. What else is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying fundamentally that not at all is better than partly. Jesus is saying, don't be a part time Christian. Don't be a little bit Christian. In the letter, in in the the book called Revelation, Jesus uh, dictates to John as he's there on his prison island, he says, uh, send this letter to the church in Laodicea. He says, I know your works. You're neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were either hot or cold. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. That it's actually better to be not a Christian at all than to be a lukewarm, partly Christian. And the reason for that is because if you're not a Christian, then, then you can say, okay, well, how do I like what's going on in my life? Is, you know, how is this working out for me? You can actually say, I am a dyed in the wool agnostic you know i don't buy any of that malarkey and then you can say how's that working out because maybe maybe that's a place where you can say you know what the king still comes at you whether or not you become a christian or not that the world the flesh and the devil will still tug at you even if you're not a christian but if you are a christian you might get it confused or a part-time christian you may say well this is god somehow you know punishing me or something like that so so don't be a part-time christian and then finally christians are expected to try and fail and the reason we know that is because the best christians in history every christian in the bible tried and failed that when when jesus was arrested they scattered none of them said ha, this is that cross jesus was telling us about let's go let's go carry our own no they said he's about to carry a cross i don't want any part of this and they vanished The best Christians in history, the Christians all through the Bible did the exact same thing. So it's better to try and fail than to not fail, than than to not try at all. Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will send you another companion. The companion will teach you everything and remind you of everything I told you. Jesus says, I will help you. I don't expect you to succeed by yourself, but I do want you to try. I want you to find out how strong that army is that's coming against you, because then you'll appreciate how much help you're getting from the Holy Spirit. So that's what Jesus is saying, and it's really the mission statement of the church. This is the opportunity we have not just to be disciples, to say, all right, sign me up. You know, I can be a Marine. I can paint that fence. It's not just to do that, but to say... I can be part of what Jesus is doing. I can be someone who helps. I can be I can be the hands and feet of Christ as he encourages people to be disciples in the face of all of the challenges that it that it comes with. This is something we do as a church. We celebrate the sacraments together as another way of helping people as they as they wrestle with the difficulty of being a Christian. We celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're going to do that next week. We celebrate baptisms. People who have been baptized can say, "Yes, This is hard, and Jesus warned me it would be hard, but he also warned me, or he also promised me that he would be with me, so we can celebrate the sacraments. And and we can also encourage one another. There's 57 things in the New Testament that Christians are supposed to do for one another. And the reason for that is sometimes if you're the one, then you just aren't going to make it. And you need other Christians who will come alongside you and help out, that we are called to help one another this is the work of the church to celebrate the sacraments and to support one another as the hands and feet of Christ, as the mechanism used by the Holy Spirit to help people, so that they can have the abundant life that Jesus promised. It will be difficult, but Jesus says it will be worth it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we um, we thank you that Jesus is not a high pressure salesperson. That he's not he's not warning us that you know this offer is going to go away. If we turn our back on it right this minute, Lord, help us. If we, if we have not put our trust in Jesus, or if our enthusiasm has fit, has has waned and we are we've really lost our saltiness, Lord, we pray that you would um, you would rekindle that or kindle it afresh um, for the first time. That is um, in us, so that we can we can actually knowing the cost, nevertheless. Um, follow Jesus. Lord, um, we pray for us as a congregation, as a part of your church, that we would be effective in helping people who are, who are struggling with the cost of being a Christian, that we can be supportive and encouraging in the face of the worst that uh, can come against us. Lord, we ask these things in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.